Good morning, everyone. It's great to see um, all of you here, and especially on kind of a gloomy day, but we need that rain. And so um, here we all are, and it's good to be together to study God's Word today. We also want to say uh, welcome to any who are joining us with our live webcast. And uh, even to those who will view this later than the actual live time, we, we're glad that you're choosing to take a look at um, our study online, and uh, we're glad for that. I want to introduce myself. Um, my name is Laurie Cooper, and my husband Peter uh, and I have attended this class for several years. We moved to the College Dale area um, six years ago. Prior to that, we'd been at Andrews for 19 years, and so um, Peter teaches at Southern in the School of Music, and I'm on the staff in the School of Social Work over at Southern. Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that we have the freedom and the opportunity to study your word and most of all to know you through that. And so right now we just ask that your spirit would guide our minds, that we could have clarity of thought and um, put things together in a way that helps us to see a better picture of you. Guide us now, we pray in your name. Amen. As we begin this week's lesson, I have a question for you. Um, If you were somehow to make the acquaintance of someone who didn't know what the Bible was at all, who had never read any scripture, who wasn't even aware that such a book existed, how would you go about describing what the Bible is to them? What would be the way you would put that to them um, to give them a quick description of what the Bible is, and, and maybe its purpose. Or, you know, one piece of that. We'll put our heads together on it. <clears throat> what would you call the Bible to somebody who didn't know it already? Does the person know that there's a God? Uh, we could say that they're aware of a, a God. Maybe they don't call it in the same way, but maybe a creator God out there, so... Yes, that's, that could be part of it, yes. I think it's God's letter to us beginning at creation and taking us right on through to the kingdom as to what will take place. So a letter. Okay, I like that. What other things? To me, it's a story of how God treats, has treated and does treat and will treat his children whether they love him or not. Okay. Consider it like a lesson book, a study guide that takes us through from creation to the end, and uh, it lets us in on other people's backgrounds, what they did, the mistakes they made, how they how they gained um, understanding of a God through their experiences in life. So it makes God more real to us today. I think it answers the questions of who we are, what we're doing here, and where we're going. Great. I like all of these ideas. Um, and I know that, you know, we, we are so blessed to have the scripture so available. And so it helps me sometimes to just kind of remind myself, what is this book and, and what, what meaning does it have for me? So I thought we'd begin with putting ourselves in that mindset just a little bit. <clears throat> now, let's look at the, The title of the lesson, this is page 14 in the quarterly, 
Revelation and the God Revealed in It. What do you think of that title? I like it because uh, I think it's, it's a great description of what, of what the Bible does. It reveals lots of different things, but its primary purpose is to reveal God. Okay. Um, this lesson covers Holy Scripture, which is the title of the first of the beliefs in the list of fundamental beliefs. And if you look at that list, um, which you can do online uh, very easily if you just put in Seventh-day Adventist 28 fundamental beliefs, if you don't have the book, the book that has um, all of those, um, it's very easy to find. But if you look, that's there's a progression there. So this is, I think, intended to be a fundamental one at the very beginning. Let's look at the paper. Um, some of you have it, and if you don't, there's plenty of copies um, you could pass down. Let's just look at that belief as it's worded um, in the official language. And as well, the introduction that comes just prior to it that introduces all the beliefs, because I think it really relates very much to this first one. So, uh, who would like to read that for us? I'll take a break with my voice and let someone just read this page. It won't take too long. Seventh-day Adventists accept the Bible as their only creed and hold certain fundamental beliefs to be the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. These beliefs, as set forth here, constitute the Church's understanding and expression of the teaching of Scripture. Revision of these statements may be expected at the General Conference session when the Church is led by the Holy Spirit to a fuller understanding of Bible truth or finds better language in which to express the teachings of the Holy Word. So that's the introduction to all of the beliefs. And it does talk about Holy Scriptures in there. Uh, anything that jumps out at you in, in those statements that of interest? Only men of God think as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Right. Uh, which, is, which is coming up there in the first, first belief. I particularly liked the, the, the declaration, the statement that says, revision of these statements may be expected at a general conference, conference session when the church is led by the Holy Spirit to a fuller understanding of Bible truth. That gives me confidence um, that there is some foundation uh, established to, to um, have a, a, a view of unfolding truth, and um, I, I like that that's included. Yes? Yeah, creeds, my understanding is the Adventist Church resisted a document like the fundamental beliefs for a long time. Creeds tend to take on lives of their own, and they tend to become static. And I also like this in the sense that it lends a dynamism to it and and leaves things open for change. Right. Uh, one, one description I read of these beliefs is uh, that that they were intended to be a description, not a prescription, um, of of what we believe and what what some fundamental truths. So, going on, let's look at the, what it says about 
the first believe Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, are the written word of God given by divine inspiration through holy men of God who spoke and wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In this word, God has committed to man the knowledge necessary for salvation. The Holy Scriptures are the infallible revelation of his will. They are the standard of character, the test of experience, the authoritative revealer of doctrines, and the trustworthy record of God's acts in history. Um, And actually, on page... On, on Friday's lesson, uh, there's a, a quote, the second paragraph there. You can see some excerpts from the language here in the, in the fundamental belief that they use that language in the belief itself. Um, not every word in it is taken as a direct quote, but there's... There's a, quite a bit of quoted here from the, um, the introduction to the Great Controversy. And by the way, that uh, very f- like little preface to the Great Controversy, if you wanted to review something um, really helpful about scripture and inspiration, that is um, a very good source, the introduction there. Um, the last few pages, I mean the first four p- or five pages of Great Controversy. Okay. <clears throat> Let's look at Sabbath's lesson, the very first page. I'm going to read Hebrews 1, and here they have the memory text as 1 and 2, but I'm going to read all the way through verse 4. I thought it added just a bit more to it. It's, um, and this is from the English Standard Version. <clears throat> Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then, I'm going to jump around a little bit because I found some things that I thought went together kind of well from different different parts. Well, actually, first of all, this, this set of verses, what, what does that tell you about scripture? Um, what do you get from this set of verses about scripture and its, and its uh, purpose and, and so forth, or its, its origins, perhaps, is a better way to say it? Originated with God. Right, and he inspired, inspired men. Um, but then one does it go on to tell us as well. I like it that it seems to indicate that God has spoken in a lot of ways, but that the most excellent way that right. he's spoken is through Jesus Christ. Right. That's what I got from it too. And that not only that, but that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. So we see this kind of uh, overview of what scripture has revealed in different ways. Um, And then the key thought right under it says, however important it is to understand the way in which biblical inspiration works, it's more important to know the God who is revealed to us through that inspiration. I really liked that that was set up as the key thought for this lesson. And um, this is sort of repeated on Tuesday's lesson in the first paragraph. And I'll 
just quickly read that too. And understanding how inspiration works, however important, is only a means to an end, and that end is to know God. A deep understanding of how the Bible was written, or even a deep understanding of the truths revealed in it, mean nothing if we don't know the Lord for ourselves. Again, um, I think this is what this class strives to do with Scripture, and I was really pleased to see that being um, a fundamental point. But let's consider now how does one's understanding of biblical inspiration and one's understanding of the God revealed in Scripture, how are those related? Or are they related? If you understand some things about how uh, the Bible is inspired and you understand some things about God, how are those related? They've just said it's important. However important it is to understand this, it's more important to understand this. But are they related? That's kind of what I'm asking here. Yes, Mitchell. The Bible is a very good representation of the union of divine and human. Hmm. Jesus was a union of human and divine, and each of us is, by the Holy Spirit, to be a union of human and divine. And Hmm. the Bible is also a union of human and divine. I love that. uh, That is an excellent... um, I don't know if that exactly the imagery. Yes, I'm thinking also then, does our view of God affect the lens through which we see scripture? Absolutely. And so that is something we can take a look at a little bit today. Um, how do we, you know, we talk often in this class about the lens that we use. And I think it's a good metaphor for, um, for this. Um, and, you know, with that background of the great controversy set up last week in the lesson, we, we also have that as a theme, that uh, scripture and God's character should go hand in hand and inform one another in a sense. Okay, Sunday's lesson it asks us to read Second um, Peter 1, 19 through 20. One. Let's look at that together. This is a very familiar verse about scripture. Someone can just go ahead and read that out for us. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy came not in old times by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Okay, so what does this, in a very basic way, tell us? How would you say that in your own words? This isn't something man dreamed up. Right, and it's inspired. Um, the first paragraph on Sunday's lesson says, Peter affirms that the prophecies of the Old Testament were not of human origin. Exactly what Johnny just said. His argument is that the prophets spoke because they were moved by the Spirit of God. The expression moved by the Spirit of God means that the impulse that led to the writing of scriptures came from the Holy Spirit. In short, the Bible writers were inspired by the Lord himself. On Monday's lesson, c- connecting to that, we see um, a, at the top a quote um, on the nature of inspiration. This comes from Selected Messages, Book 1, 
um, by Ellen White. And I'm going to read the paragraph that comes before this, before we read it, because um, I think it added for me a little bit more very concrete things. Here's what it says. And again, this, you may have may already be familiar with this passage, but I think it's good for us to remind ourselves. It says, the Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God, as a writer, is not represented. Men will often say such an expression is not like God, but God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. Look at the different writers. And then it goes on, it picks up then, then the next paragraph, um, this quote at the top of Monday's lesson. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who, under the influence of the Holy Ghost, is imbued with thoughts. But the words receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is diffused. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus, the utterances of the man are the word of God. And this, this connects with what you were saying about human and divine joining together. Um, she's she's uh, putting it in those kind of, of terms as well. Sorry. Yes. I think this is great because it also again states... God never forces, never controls. We're not puppets. Even his prophets are not puppets. He allows them to be who they are and express things the way they see it. He's done everything he can to reveal himself so that they look through the right lens. Yes. But he still allows freedom. Exactly. I, I like that point very much. The prophets grow over time. You can see the prophets' arc of their experience, so to speak. Exactly. Beginning, and then they learn more, and then they express it even better, and then they express it even better and more clearly pure than what they originally maybe understood at the beginning. Yes. Yes. And it seems evident that many of the visions that they saw were visual, that is, it was left up to the prophet to put that in words, and we especially see that in the prophet Ezekiel, who could not think of metaphors. You know, he had a very, very hard time yeah. describing things that he saw in heaven in earthly terms because they didn't look like things that we have words for in our human language. And so he struggled to come up with words to express heavenly things. Right, so one of the, the challenges for the writers was to even be able to put it in words at times. I like that. Then Monday's lesson goes on, and we're not going to take the time to go in depth on this, but it goes into some uh, times when the Bible appears to maybe contradict itself, problematic areas, and it um, gives some examples. But I'd like us to look then now at the bottom of Monday's lesson, in the middle of that last paragraph, it starts with the vast majority, and I'll read that now. The vast majority of the Bible is not problematic. In the few places where some questions remain about apparent errors or contradictions, the prudent attitude would be humility. Who knows how many people have made a shipwreck of faith by focusing on problem texts? We have not been called to stand in judgment over the word. We have been called instead to obey it. 
What comes to mind here as you hear that? Yeah. My thought is, is that we actually, we actually are called to use judgment. We're called to think. I mean, that's why the revelation is given to us so that we can engage our mind and struggle with it and, and learn of God and determine. I mean, God is on judgment. We're to determine if we want to trust him or not. <laughs> well said, well said. I felt like there a shift happened here in that last sentence that um, that maybe even the one before it talking about making a shipwreck of your faith well I feel like we're we're encouraged to strive with the word to um, to to look and and study it and dig dig for the treasure in it, and um, if that means that at times we're we're a little confounded because of our human limitations. Now I know some people completely choose to lose their faith over this, and 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 that is tragic. But um, I think we need to strive with the word. Yes. Well, again, we've got the problem of human language right in that sentence. What does judgment mean? Mm-hmm. Here it means to cavil or to criticize, or to find fault with. And we're using also, but the word judgment also means to evaluate, Mm -hmm. to apply. And so that's a word that gives us trouble in that sentence. And that's an example of many problems that we can have. Right. And it's not just us. It is that everyone that you want to talk to about God, they, they have to start with a foundation somewhere. And you're going to be talking about the Bible if they don't see it as important, if they don't see it as something trustworthy. You don't really have a whole lot of foundation to, to go with with them, so you need to be prepared to help them evaluate the word as well. Exactly. Yes, yes. I was thinking where it said the apparent errors or contradictions. I think this, again, goes back to the lens or your vision of who God is as you read the Bible. And as my lens has adjusted um, Mm -hmm. in large part to this class, I find it's an amazing miracle that you have this many (laughs) different viewpoints, inspired men of God that can write for thousands of years, and basically there are no contradictions. The message is consistent throughout, which I think is miraculous. And you talked about lens, and that, that makes us maybe think, what is it we're looking at? What is it that we're looking at? And how could people... Look at that last statement of we haven't been called to stand in judgment, but we've been called instead to obey it. Um, is there dangers in that idea? Um, if not, depending on what lens you view those words through. Um, we're going to take a moment to, to look at it in the context of a specific example. Something that came to me recently, I, I get the... Um, Adventist review online format through work, and I always peruse the the articles and see what's what's there. As you um, are probably aware, there's been some issue going on in the church right now of, uh, on the issue of ordination of women, and I don't plan for us to discuss that today. Um, but <laughs> they had a they they have had a little series of articles that are um, intended to promote the idea of unity as we are in this, in this uh, little bit of a, a struggle um, over this issue. 
And one of the articles or one of the features that they had was a collection of some of the letters to the editor that have been written to the review um, on this issue. And I think they've tried to take some representative um, ideas in this group that they've chosen. It's only about, I don't know, maybe eight, no more than ten letters total, I don't think, that they feature in this article. I found it very interesting, and I'm, I've taken some quotes from some of those letters, and, and maybe we can um, see, because if we talk about being obedient to God's word, which is where we kind of left off here in the lesson, we're called to obey it, um, I think that that's part of the issue here that people are, are dealing with, as, the, as we struggle over this real-world thing that's in our very own church. Um, so I'm going to just read some quotes. And they don't attempt to categorize them, per se, in, in, the, uh, in the article. Um, but it's fairly clear, for the most part, what people's view of the, the issue itself is. So uh, on the more pro-ordination of women side, here's a couple of Quotes. One person says, we as a church have studied the matter both theologically and historically and have found no basis for denying female pastors the privilege of organization or ordination into the gospel ministry. As a church, we cannot change the mentality of other cultures when it comes to theological thinking when it is part of their culture norms. So that was one idea. Here's another one. When does the church realize that culture cannot dictate nor hold back the church's movement? When does the church realize that what works in one part of the world isn't best for another part of the globe? Salvation is gender neutral. So must be the review of those who seek to affirm those whom God has called and chosen. Then, maybe on the other side of the coin, here are some, here are some examples. The argument that the Bible doesn't specifically forbid the ordination of women is reminiscent of what took place in the gradual change from Sabbath-keeping to Sunday-keeping. The confusion over the role of the sexes that God assigned to each since the beginning shows how unreasonable political correctness has become. Another person wrote, Has the Seventh-day Adventist Church just received official light from the heavenly throne of the universe to now ordain, chosen, or called Women to the gospel ministry? No, our God has not turned on the green light showing that we are now to go ahead and ordain women. Jesus set an example by choosing 12 men to be gospel ministers. <laughs> and this one doesn't come out very clearly. I'm pretty sure that this person is against the um, ordination, but I'm not sure. I will, this person wrote, I will add my opinion on this issue based on scripture. What did God say was the original plan for creation? The original plan is always the right plan. God created the universe not only very good, but perfect. What was God's original plan for, wo for woman? God created both male and female in his own image. God was, I mean, woman was to complement man with the skills God gave to her and be his helpmeet. What does a helpmeet do? She helps. It's simple as that. So, it's as simple as that, according to this person. Um, now, the interesting thing to me, partly, was that 
all of those letters written, except for one in the, in the, I didn't read from one that was not from North American Division, but they're all from the North American Division. And so while the NAD is likely to have a majority of members who would vote in favor of women's ordination, there still appears to be a, a vocal minority. And so is there something more than like global cultural differences at work here? Um, could it be that the, the real issue that needs unity is more about interpretation of scripture rather than this, this one issue as we just look at it by itself? If maybe taking a step back and saying, how do we go about the job? Because sincere people have come to very different conclusions about this matter using the same material. People who think that they're being led by the Spirit to, and are seeking truth. So maybe the, the issue for unity is really more on, on how is Scripture viewed and in what light, with what lens, and so forth. Um, I thought that was just an example that's going on right now in our church. And what are principles for scriptural interpretation that would be in harmony with God's ways? I thought we could spend some time today, maybe that is a takeaway for us um, a little bit um, with this lesson. Um, and maybe what are some of the dangers? You know, the Bible has been used to justify horrible things um, throughout history, and not just in the very distant past or in just very distant places. Uh, 150 years ago in this country, Scripture was really used to defend slavery. Um, and then in more recent times even, Christian, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the Bible, not just other religions. It's been used to justify ethnic cleansing, um, war, etc. Uh, so we need to maybe identify just for our own sakes, because I think this can be an insidious little thing that can creep in um, to, to even when we think we've got a good view of what are these dangers and what could possibly grow to make Scripture turn into a weapon. Um, let's start by looking at what things we can learn about the role of Scripture for our own lives from the life of Christ and how he handled Scripture. Um, just take a moment to think about Christ's life and the revelation of that for us in Scripture. What kinds of things did he do that involved the use of Scripture? Yes. Jesus didn't really add new things. Hmm. He took the lessons of the Old Testament and told Proverbs and Psalms and Isaiah, Ezekiel as stories. Hmm. And um, when people asked him questions, he referred them directly to Scripture often. So he really, he really interpreted it in a way that seemed new, but it was the old truths cast in a way that was more attractive to his audience. Yes, I like that very much. Adding to that, look at how he handled the accuser. Exactly. He did not. Get he didn't use any of his own words, did he? He did not get into confrontation. Right. They actually were his own words, but you know what I mean. 
Yes. One thing that I noticed is that he said, you have heard that it was said. Yes. But I am saying unto you. I had that on my list too. I mean, he meets us where we're at. And, and if we're in a level of darkness, then he works with us there. But he still has an ideal that he wants to bring us to. And so it's expanding and growing. And could it be that he was, by his very incarnation and being in that moment in history where he was present as God in human form, he was announcing not, not a transition as though something has changed, but a, a, a new way of looking at it so that we could understand clearly that God had to meet uh, in some very unique ways people where they were in the past. But now that he was directly present and among us, he could be a little more clear about um, and speak, speak plainly about, about what the ideal is. And he goes down a, quite a, I reviewed that this week, quite a list of things in Matthew 5 um, where he says, you have heard it said, but I say, and he starts everyone with that same thing just to make his point. Yes? Not only that, but he was having to reinterpret because the ministers, rabbis, mm-hmm. had, had so drifted into their own interpretation of everything that they had presented, began to present people as if their thoughts were the way to interpret that, and their thoughts were off, they were wrong. And so Jesus had to come and drift and get them back to what he really meant by this kind of information. Right, and in fact, in Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus directly addresses the Pharisees in that famous passage we call the woes. And one of them, in particular, I think, um, chap- uh, verses 23 and 24, are, are really zeroing in on some how they are looking at Scripture. And I think there's a lot in here. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Um, justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So is there a principle here in what Jesus is saying about, about the way we look at scripture, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think when he was using scripture to, to when he was talking to humans, as opposed to say when he was responding to Satan during Satan's temptation of him. But when he was responding to humans, I don't think he was coming from a standpoint of saying, yeah, you guys got it all wrong, you're wrong, I'm right. I think he was trying to help us see more clearly, this is what you need, like the belief says, for salvation. And, and I'm reminded at the end of one of the verses for this week's uh, scripture verses in Second Timothy, where after Paul lists what scripture is, it's given by inspiration for reproof, etc. But at the very end of that, in verse 17, he says that the person of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You had mentioned the idea of a weapon before, and obviously sometimes we can be tempted to use scripture as a weapon to show we're right and everyone else is wrong. But I don't think that's how Jesus was using it, even when he was pretty strongly, like you just said, talking to the religious leaders of the day, for example. And I think the strength of it, 
to me is that, is because he was confronting such a big obstacle to the people's ability to see the true character of God. He was he was opposing that um, in the way he needed to uh, for the people he was addressing and for those who were affected by the Pharisees' teachings. Yes. Well, I was kind of going to say that. I mean, what was his purpose in coming to earth? You have to look at that and see that everything he did and everything he said was with that in mind. And what was that? To show us God's character. To show us the plan that was put in place originally that had been totally messed up by Satan. And and he's trying to guide us step by step back to that. And he can't do that by looking at one text or one idea. You know, it takes the whole... The whole thing, the whole 66. Right. He talks about the weightier matters of the law. And how does Christ refer to Scripture when he talks about it? Uh, he, he often uses the term the law and the prophets. Um, and th- that was Scripture to them. That was what was established. By that time, it had been established as Scripture. And he's giving us an idea that there's a theme. There's a theme in Scripture. And if you just take out... Um, the little bits and only focus on them just in the way they are stated without taking that theme into context, you're going to be off base. What else about Christ? Um, I'm going to look here at my list and see if there was any that haven't been mentioned. The temptation. uh, In Matthew, just prior to to, uh, these woes, he is where he is um, quoted as talking about um, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So he's establishing the idea of a theme, a thread through the Bible um, for us. All right. So, if we were now to boil it down to some stated guiding principles for scriptural interpretation, you know, we've looked at what Jesus did for an example, but if we wanted to say and, and teach somebody else some things about how to interpret scripture, what would we tell them? What kinds of guiding principles would you then say? That some of it will be a little bit of a repeat of what we've sprinkled throughout our lesson today. But let's crystallize a little bit and see if we can get some things listed. Yes? If I was writing a term paper, I wouldn't just use one quote from one person. You get a theme. Yes, I like that a lot. Um, that gives me the idea. I, I know there's this um, quote, and, and someone could maybe tell me where it's from. I don't know. Where we talk about precept upon precept. We're comparing scripture with scripture. We're looking for not just one idea on a, on a topic, but the bigger picture. And so that's, for me, one of the, the main principles is to look at the big picture of scripture. Um, to see what that golden thread that's throughout, yes. And then if you think about the great controversy, what is, what is the object of the golden thread? You know, what is the controversy even over? 
I mean, where did the questions originate? It was all about what kind of God, you know, exactly. God is, what he's like, if he's trustworthy. And so the Bible is a revelation, and this whole controversy, God is trying to reveal himself to mankind, to all his creation. And, and so that's really what we should be looking for when we're reading the Word. We shouldn't be looking for all the minute details about what to obey, but rather instead, what is this saying about God, and what's he like, and is he somebody I want to follow and trust with my life? Yeah. Right. And that, but then that theme, that thread, that um, big picture idea informs the smaller things as well as we need to, to maybe sometimes figure out. Um, it helps us to know whether a passage ha- should be viewed as having a local application or a universal application, depending on its relationship to the, the full context of scripture. Um, an example, we talked about, I mentioned slavery being justified, you know. So even though slavery is not specifically condemned as such in the Bible, and even though slaves are at times in the scripture encouraged to be obedient to their masters, and then even verses like some, uh, in Leviticus 25, there's some, a uh, passage that, that, uh, describes the the buying, keeping, and inheriting of slaves as part of, of uh, the given law at that time. But we can discern by looking at the big picture that slavery it doesn't fit with God's principles and his, his um, ideal design for, for mankind. And so that, that's what informs us about the smaller things. Yes. I think we have to teach principles, not rules. Exactly. We're looking for those, those big things. Um, another thing I had when I thought about the idea of guiding principles for the study of Scripture is, um, first of all, just the idea that truth is unfolding and that we will never, ever have completely arrived at all the truth there is. And so to come to hard and fast conclusions about scripture is dangerous. <laughs> um, we need to always be open and we need to be have humility. That's another one I thought of. And a, a teachable spirit. Um, and open to the spirit's leading with it. Um, and then also understanding the role of context in scripture. Um, that idea of a local or a universal application um, and then viewing Christ as the ultimate expression of God's will and character, that is where we go back to when we're, when, especially if we're confused, <laughs> um, is to look there and say, okay, if this is God's best uh, way of teaching us stubborn humans what we need to know, then uh, how does that inform the other parts of Scripture? Now, is, should we test Scripture? Is it testable? And if so, how do we kind of go about that? What are some things we can do? Use cross-references. So looking at different places. To, to, is there anything... This is going to be kind of a 
a question, I don't want to be misunderstood. Is there anything outside of Scripture that can help us test Scripture? Yes. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit? And how, how can things work for us to, to help um, give evidence for Scripture's validity, its truth? The, the way nature... Exactly. That's what I was thinking, that nature actually testifies. We're told that it does in Scripture, that it testifies that God's word is truth. Um, we can see principles in nature that are in harmony with what we see in, in Scripture as well. Yes? I, one thing that works for me is when I look at something, I have to call it this clear pillar of truth through which I sift everything. How does it make God look? If I believe the principle as I was either taught by as a child or or have heard from someone else. I mean, there's just tons of churches out there because we've all used different lenses and we see things differently. So what if everyone was to start saying, hmm, how does this, this principle or this doctrine or dogma make God look? Does it make him look like a loving, caring God or does it make him look vindictive and vengeful and angry? And then if it does, maybe we need to rethink how we have interpreted that doctrine. I think it would change a lot of stuff. Yes, I like that. And, and, and asking, what does this say about the God I would be worshiping if I... Because that's, that's if, if we are convinced that Scripture teaches that certain things, you know, we end up using the Bible as a weapon, for example. What does that tell us about the God we're worshiping? Yes. Tie that in. Um, this is kind of a backwards way. As Stuart says, those who will not study the scriptures are bidden to read God's lessons in the history of the nations. Hmm. And I think we can also see, for example, in the area of sexual morality would be a good example. Um, since the sexual revolution of the 60s, the results are very clear and open to anyone who, with an open mind, you can clearly see without recourse to scripture what the consequences of the consequences of various sexual behaviors, and that, I think, establishes the validity of the scriptures. I like that very much. It, it tells us that <clears throat> experience, uh, whether it's looking at the experience of a society or individual experience even, can validate scriptural truth. Um, we've talked in this class before about you know, the law of love ha- can't have any coercion in it. It has to have an element of freedom. And when that freedom is taken away, and we see that in relationships, it, it testifies to the necessity of that. And so experience also. So we have scripture as the ultimate uh, authority in a sense, but we can see how nature and experience um, testify to those um, scriptural truths. Oh, yes, yes, please. Um, I think there's a danger of us bringing our culture and tradition and trying to find support from the Bible for that instead of letting the Bible bring us to action and determine what we are going to believe and how we're going to act. Right. I, um, I have a part in my notes that we may not get to today that talks about now, you know, on the other hand, what are the dangers what are the th- pitfalls to avoid with handling scripture? And, and, you know, I had put down, you know, wanting scripture to conform to what I want rather than the other way around. Um, and, 
and I, I appreciate that very much, what you've said, and uh, there's scriptural warnings against that. <clears throat> um, let's see. I think I've covered all the ones that I had. One. I, I found a really nice quote I thought I'd share. It just kind of gives us a, I think, a view of how we need to really prayerfully let scripture um, guide our lives and be guarding against these pitfalls. It says, daily, hourly, we must be actuated by the principles of Bible truth, righteousness, mercy, and the love of God. He who, who, he who would have moral and intellectual power must draw from the divine source. At every point of decision, inquire, is this the way of the Lord? With your Bibles open before you, consult sanctified reason and a good conscience. Your heart must be moved, your soul touched, your reason and intellect awakened by the Spirit of God. And then the holy principles revealed in the Word of God will give light to the soul. Um, I liked that term, sanctified reason, that when we let um, God change our hearts and minds and we really desire to live by his ways, he will reveal himself to us. I think this is a really excellent description. That's um, from an article in the Review and Herald back in February 1893. Um, I will just quickly tell you a few dangers that I came up with, and you can see if you have any to add to this. Um, One of them I said was bumper sticker theology. God said it, I believe it, that settles it, which is the narrow view to say, I'm zeroing in on this one verse or a couple of verses, and I'm going to build a theological doctrine just from that without looking for that bigger context. Um, Also, we really don't have time to explore this too much, but we've, I think we've talked in this class before about how you know the Bible has some claims it makes. When, when the Bible says God is love, that's a claim. But then he provides evidence for it. But if we just take the claim and we don't bother to understand what the evidence is, there's some danger in that. So blind obedience is, is kind of what that might be about. And... Uh, we, we've learned that there's levels of maturity and obedience. The Bible refers to that um, about uh, moving from milk to solid food with understanding of God's ways. Um, the idea that the view of God, if it's looked at as God is a God who arbitrarily enacted his laws because by golly, that's what he wanted to have happen, and you better or else, um, that is going to taint one's view of what the word's role is in our lives and what um, it comes to show. And just the danger of then separating or disconnecting doctrine from God's character of love. Um, Apathy and complacency regarding this role of scripture in the life. Um, it really needs to be something that affects us. It's, it is God's letter to us, and he gave it as a special gift. And if we disregard that, um, we aren't going to get the blessings that are in store for us if we don't. Then, uh, any other dangers that you can just think of quickly in our last few minutes here? 
Yes, Tina. What if someone says they believe the Bible was inspired by God, but the truth was lost in the translation? I mean, I've actually had people say to me, well, the Bible probably originally was inspired, but when it was translated into the English language, how do you know the people that translated didn't use their own words to translate it? But I think that, again, we can go back to the idea of, well, then, then worry less about little individual words here and there translated and see if you can find a big picture in there. Is there something that the, the whole set, it'd be really, I mean, unless this person is really going to believe that, the whole theme of scripture was changed in the translation. I think that uh, regardless of little things like where the comma is in a certain sentence that changes the meaning, like we know that famous spot um, about I'll be with you in paradise, whether that happened or not, there's still th- that common theme. Yes, what else? Ask them if they have come to that conclusion by experience or hearsay. Uh, that's a good one. <laughs> yes. I've also had people tell me, and I think personally, that it is God's word, and if it's important to him for us to have what it originally needs, then he's the one that's protected it all this time. I like that. Make sure that we found it in the right place and that been with the people that translated it. The other thing I'd like to leave you with is the idea of, um, with scripture, and I like, it kind of goes with what you were saying, is that something from your own experience, or is it hearsay? Uh, a danger is to let someone else do our thinking for us with, with regard to scripture. Checking our brains at the door, so to speak, when we come to church. And that's actually a danger that crosses boundaries of view of scripture. You can be a, a very strict conservative fundamentalist or more quote-unquote liberal and checking your brain at the door. And I just would share just, again, as we're closing today, a personal experience, a um, little testimony, so to speak. 30 years ago this month, my husband and I walked into a Seventh-day Adventist church for the very first time. And probably two or three months prior to that, we had never heard of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Literally. I didn't know it was even that existed. That day we walked into the church was not even in this country. It was in Germany, where we were baptized several months later. We had been introduced a couple of months prior to our leaving for this year abroad to the idea of there being a Seventh-day Adventist church, or more, more so to the idea of there being a church that worshipped on what they called the Seventh-day Sabbath, which was a totally new concept for me and my husband, and I grew up going to church. My father was on the ministry staff of the church when I was a baby. And until I got married in that church, that's the church I went to. I was there several times a week for services and activities, very much integrated into the life of that church. It was where my friends and my family, friends, that's where I knew them. And I went to Sunday school all the time. I studied my lesson. I thought I really was well-versed in scripture. Then kind of got confronted with this new idea that there was a church that did something very different. Because I kind of thought that all the 
Protestant churches were nearly the same, just some little minor things, but this was quite a bit different. And the person who introduced us to the church did a beautiful job, was very informal. We literally walked into a discussion he was having with somebody else one day and heard him talking about some things. And then when that person left, we kind of just kept the conversation going. And he never said, well, my church says this and my church said that. He just talked about, well, here's what I've gotten from Scripture on on this. And, he, and it actually didn't start with the Sabbath. It started with state of the dead. But um, that was the first thing that caught our interest. When we decided to visit a Seventh-day Adventist church, just being intrigued by the the idea, which at that point was especially attractive to my husband, that initial idea was, this is a church that upholds and follows scripture. Because his question had always been, if there's one Bible, why are there so many churches? And so, though... um, it was a little scary for me to make potentially a big change. I said, well, we could try it out and see. And we had some interesting experiences in that process that were just, looking back, just really wonderful. But anyway, God was in this whole thing the whole time. I'm, I'm convinced of that. But we, when it came down to it, the big thing for me It was very difficult, having been so entrenched in a a church life and and, in a set of ideas that I just took for granted as being true, to to have that cognitive dissonance that that arose and wrestle with it, because it was was a big thing for me. Um, I had to realize that I had let somebody else do the thinking for me. I had not searched it out for myself. I hadn't used um, principles that would have given me a bigger picture of Scripture. And then I realized the thing that I had to get over was the cultural connection. But that's a big pull. And so we need to be really understanding with folks as we um, deal with them knowing that they're coming from some things that feel very familiar and comfortable. And while we encourage them to consider looking a little bit more and, and taking things on as an examination, evaluation for themselves and not just letting someone else think for them, um, we can pray that the Spirit will move in the, their lives um, it was, a, in the end, a big blessing for me. I had to almost kind of go through a grief process of letting the old go and, and coming to the new. But um, God, and then I found myself, because that was 30 years ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, realizing I'm doing it again. I'm letting someone else do my thinking for me. And I'm just, just in a different church doing the same thing. So that's where I'm, I'm especially keen to this danger. I know it's been something that I've had to throw off in my life. And um, so thank you so much today for your good participation. And uh, Peter, would you lead us in prayer? Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity we have to come here and to worship you, to study you, to learn more about you, to be led by you. I ask that each one of us would know your paths and your will for our lives as we go into the rest of this Sabbath day. 
And I thank you for your word that gives us this clear picture of you. The Holy Spirit be our guide in all things. Amen.